This episode is supported by Sidetracked Magazine. Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Delivering in-depth interviews, expeditions and adventures. Be sure to check us out on social media and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is Sunny Stroer. And then I ran my first half marathon after college and ran my first full marathon in business school, mostly to see if I could do it. You know, it wasn't because I loved running. It was just because it seemed so hard and so difficult and so impossible that being a type A personality, I was really curious to find out if I could actually go and manage to do a distance like that. But I absolutely hated it and promised myself after every race that I would never, ever do anything stupid like that ever again. And then... I fell in with this crowd that invited me to go run my first ultramarathon. And after I finished that ultramarathon, I realized that once you go into those extreme long distances, it's no longer about the physical performance, but it's all about the mental challenge and the psychological transformation. And I really, really, really fell in love with that. And I've been an athlete ever since. Now, Sunny is an incredible endurance athlete who has a great background in fastest known times on Aconcagua, achieving brilliant endurance races, 100 kilometers, 100 miles through the mountains on endurance races and winning them. So a brilliant guest to have on, and she's just recently turned to backcountry skiing by Enter the Iditarod Trail, which is a tough as nails competition in Alaska, which we dive into quite early on in the interview. We're also chatting about her mindset and specifically the acceptable line of risk, which is fantastic. She has a comparison, a two category comparison, which is really, really insightful. And I hope you really look forward to it and enjoy that part too. But it's a long episode, so let's just dive straight into one of my favorite episodes. And thank you so much for listening. Sunny, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, it's my pleasure, honestly. Um, I wanted to kick off the podcast really with a quote from you. So you said, I still have 20 miles to go and my joints are creaking with exhaustion from over 40,000 feet of climbing. And yet, despite it all, I can't help a big smile. Tell us, why do you adventure? <laughs> well, I love uncertainty and I love discovery and I love putting myself in situations where I'm not sure what's going to happen, where I don't know how I'm going to react, where I don't know what I'm going to find around the next corner and where I just have no clue what my day or my night or my week is going to look like. And that's the reason that I go out there and that I do really long and really hard things. Yeah, I was going to say your, your recent completion of uh, Editorod is uh, pretty mental. <laughs> I, I like the update where you're like, uh, I can't remember what it was. Was it the skis broke or something? And so you're yeah. just like, yeah, just going to hike, finish it. <laughs> well, you know, I had no business skiing it anyway, because I have no background as a skier. I'm a runner, a mountain runner to be specific. And I've downhill skied, but I'm not a cross-country skier by any means, but decided to do 350 miles off the Editorat on skis. And um, after 250 miles, my bindings broke. So then I had an excuse to just carry my skis and hike the rest, which actually was easier for me than skiing. <laughs> so your love for physical activity started when you did your first ultra run. But what was it exactly that clicked for you? You know, 
I never was an athlete as a child. Um, as a matter of fact, I pretty much abhorred physical activity. That was my punishment. You know, my parents would drag me to go on walks when I had my nose in a book for hours and hours and they just needed to get me out of the house. And I really didn't like it. But I started to run in college, mostly because I felt like I was getting fat and out of shape and running seemed to be a really cheap and easy way to do something about that. So I started running in college just for fitness. And then I ran my first half marathon after college and ran my first full marathon in business school, mostly to see if I could do it. You know, it wasn't because I loved running. It was just because it seemed so hard and so difficult and so impossible that being a type A personality, I was really curious to find out if I could actually go and manage to do a distance like that but I absolutely hated it and promised myself after every race that I would never, ever do anything stupid like that ever again. And then I fell in with this crowd that invited me to go run my first ultra marathon. And after I finished that ultra marathon, I realized that once you go into those extreme long distances, it's no longer about the physical performance, but it's all about the mental challenge and the psychological transformation And I really, really, really fell in love with that. And I've been an athlete ever since. The complete addiction to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think a lot of us will relate to that. Just just like disgusting type two fun. I saw a funny meme the other day going like during your hike, during the end of your hike, God, why do I hike and never do this again? Like then like two days later, right, where should we go next? <laughs> exactly. It's the same thing, isn't it? I mean that, that approach you had of of just seeing if you could do it, was that the same reason you signed up to the Editorod? Yes, 100%. I mean, I am the type of person who gets really bored if I do the same thing over and over again. And I get bored as well if I can predict what the outcome of a certain challenge is going to be, right? So if I know, for example, that I can run a marathon distance, it's no longer interesting for me to go and run a marathon and try to do it faster because I kind of have an appreciation of what type of work it takes to go do it. And what kind of work it takes in order to train up, to get better, to get faster, to do whatever, right? There is very little uncertainty in that entire process. It's just a matter of how much work do you put in and then what do you get out? For the Iditarod, um, I mean, I had never done anything like that before, right? I'm an endurance athlete, but I'm a mountain runner. First off, I'm a runner. Secondly, I'm really good at high altitude, not in the extreme cold. I'd never done a 350 mile race. I'd never done anything on cross-country skis. As a matter of fact, I hadn't had cross-country skis until about two weeks prior to the race, right? So I, I had zero experience in skiing and I had never been up in Alaska for a big objective like that. And uh, what else? I mean, it was just one of those things where I had no clue how I was going to react putting all of these new elements together. Now, I knew that I can go and I can put my head down and I can do really long distances and I can pull through some really hard physical and mental challenges. But I was completely new to all of these specific challenge elements of the Iditarod. And that's what I love about it, that I just had no clue what to expect. Really interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because I'm researching a guest at the moment and she said that, you know, she, she likes not being able to visualize what she's about to do. You know, like cycling to the Yukon and back from Calgary for her. Now that she knows what that entails, she wouldn't want to do it again. But yeah. I mean, do, do you think that that's quite important for you then, not just not being able to visualize what, what's about to happen? Absolutely. I mean, maybe it's okay for me to be able to visualize it in a certain way, but I don't want to be able to predict 
how things are going to go. You know, as long as something isn't predictable, it's interesting to me. When I first started to get into ultra marathons, I had no idea if I could run hundred kilometers. So it was really exciting to me. And then I had no idea if I could run hundred miles and that was really exciting to me. And then I had no idea if I could go and put together an ultra distance with a high altitude environment and go and figure out my own course, right? And then I realized I can do all of these things. And so now that's no longer all that exciting to me because it's predictable. With the Iditarod, it wasn't predictable. And in a way, it still is not predictable to me. I actually signed up to go and do it again next year. <laughs> so contradicting myself a little bit here. But, um, you know, I have ambitions to go and ski to the South Pole at some point. And that's something that's entirely unpredictable to me. And that's exactly the reason that it's so appealing, because I don't know how it's going to go. And I don't know if I can do it. And I love that. You know, I want the possibility of failure because if you don't have that possibility of failure, then success doesn't really mean anything. But talking about the Iditarod, in a recent post, you thanked it for bringing you back to life and letting you restore an unshakable confidence. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, when I started adventuring, I had all these big goals and a moving target because I hadn't done very much yet and I hadn't proven to myself what types of challenges I could master and what types of decisions I could make and you know where I could apply my problem solving skills so early on in my adventure career everything was exciting and everything was new and then I have to admit that over the last you know probably three or four years things lost their splendor a little bit because I was more and more looking at challenges where I had a pretty good idea that I probably could complete them and I had a pretty good idea that I was able to go and accomplish the things that I set out to do over the last couple of years. With the Iditarod, I did not at all. And it scared me shitless, to be honest. You know, when I realized what I was in for, I mean, I had sweet talked my way into that race, right? I had no business being there. Typically, you have to qualify with at least two ultra winter ultra marathon finishes. Uh, long distances, you know, hundred milers or more. And you have to have all these experiences. I had none of that. I just emailed the race directors and I said, Hey, here's my adventure resume. I really want to go do this. Please let me go and let me do the race. And they said, well, maybe. <laughs> and finally they said, yes. Um, and I just kind of figured because I hadn't done very much research, you know, I just kind of figured that I'd get into the race and then I'd get mailed a mandatory gear list. And then it'd be kind of, you know, the hand holding baby steps towards getting ready for an eventual solo unsupported South pole mission, which was going to be the main event, you know, eventually. So I really wasn't looking at the ITI, which is short for the Iditarod trail invitational. I wasn't looking at the ITI as this big mission and big goal in and of itself. I was just looking at it as a stepping stone to get ready for something bigger. And so didn't necessarily take it seriously to start with until I emailed the race crew, race director, and said, hey, you know, it's now two months out from the race. I haven't seen a mandatory gear list yet. Uh, you know, am I off the mailing list? Or like, are you guys going to send out a mandatory gear list? And the response that I got was, Yep. Nope. There is no mandatory gear list. You know, the thing that you have to carry is a spot tracker, which we're going to give you, which doesn't have an emergency button, by the way, though. It only is there for tracking, not for SOS. And then the second thing that you have to carry because this is COVID is um, a mask so that you can go and mask up when you go inside the checkpoints. Outside of that, there is no mandatory gear list because we assume that if you're in this event, you know what you're doing, you have experience with winter ultras, what gear you want to carry is entirely up to you. (laughs) And at that point I said, oh, (laughs) 
okay, <laughs> I better go and start to really figure out how I'm going to do this. And um, I started to take it seriously and I started to freak out. And I said, I'm going to be out there with, you know, up to 60 miles in between checkpoints out in the interior of Alaska and potentially negative 40, negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit with nothing other than what I'm carrying with me. And I have no survival experience in that type of environment. So, you know, at that point, I really started to get scared, but I started to get scared in the best possible way. It was exactly the type of challenge and exactly the type of uncertainty that brought me into extreme adventures in the first place. And it was the most rewarding process to go through that entire journey of trying to figure out how to do this safely, figuring out how to pull it off, figuring out how to pull it all together. And, you know, in the end, it was an incredibly hard race for me. I would actually say that from a physical perspective, it wasn't the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, from the mental perspective, maybe not either, but it was most certainly the farthest out there experience that I've had um, either ever, or at least since the very first hundred kilometer race that I did off the couch 10 years ago. Do you mean like an uncomfortable out there? Um, uncomfortable, yeah, uncomfortable out there, but also just out there in terms of so far beyond my previous sphere of experience that I was just completely in the dark. I mean, I, I had no concept of what it was going to be like. I truly could not visualize what that experience was going to look like. I had no idea what it was going to feel like to be crossing, you know, a frozen river in chest high snow in negative 20 degrees during a blizzard on your own in the middle of the night after I hadn't slept for 36 hours. You know, I, I didn't know. And that was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Did you think the outcome would have been different if you hadn't have emailed for that mandatory kit list? Um, maybe. I mean, if I had had a mandatory gear list, I think my preparation would have been very different. You know, I would have taken it less seriously, as I said, you know, I would have just kind of looked at the list and made a bunch of purchases and packed up my stuff and then said, oh, well, you know, if they say that this race is doable with this kit and I have the kit, then surely the race is doable. And as such, you know, it's just up to me to make smart decisions. And it would have taken a lot of the guesswork and a lot of the uncertainty out of it. And I think it might've made it easier for me to succeed from a physical perspective, but it would have made it harder for me to succeed from a mental perspective, because at that point, I really would have looked at it more as a, okay, you know, at this point, it's just a matter of going through the motions, checking all the boxes and making sure that I don't screw up versus being on my toes hundred percent of the time saying, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I made smart enough decisions. I don't know if I prepared the right gear. I don't know if my strategy will work. So I really, really loved that element of the unknown and that wild adventure. Yeah, absolutely. And then last one on that one as well, thinking back to your sort of feeling of almost like dullness from the adventures you were doing, was that a similar feeling to when you had that 100 hour week burnout? Was it similar or, or, or very, very different? No, it's exactly the same. I mean, what you're touching on is that, you know, six years ago, I quit my corporate job because I just wasn't feeling aligned. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I wasn't feeling happy, even though I was in objectively a very good situation, having a, you know, good high earning job with, you know, good performance reviews, good colleagues, good clients, good everything, making good money and having a good career. But I just did not at all enjoy it because again, it was predictable. You know, I had a pretty good idea of what it took for me 
to go and make that money and to go and make my clients happy and to go and get the promotions. And it started to become just a matter of putting in the hours and putting in the sleep deprivation and putting in the hard work and then taking home a paycheck every other week. And that was not enough to motivate me and to keep me going, you know, in a way I wish that it had been because it would make life a lot easier. <laughs> you know, it'd be a very nice stable existence and a, a lucrative um, just journey towards a conventional career, but that's not my personality. You know, what I need is that lack of predictability. I need that excitement and discovery of something new, but at the same time, what's interesting in my case, I think is that, I actually really don't like risk, you know, as silly as that may sound, I'm not a big risk taker. And so, for example, I don't like the idea of courting situations where real physical harm is a likelihood. So, for example, you know, if you look at really hard cutting edge rock climbing, you know, or you look at downhill skiing, you know, big mountain skiing or big wave surfing or any of the, you know, really impressive momentum sports. That's not something that I want to do because I consider that risky and I don't want to go into a sphere where, you know, I'm flirting with danger at a point where, you know, there's a very real chance of me walking away um, with some physical harm. Right. So I'm not a risk taker, but I do want and crave uncertainty. And so I'm always trying to find ways that allow me to pursue that uncertainty and to discover new things without necessarily dialing up the risk in an objective hazard type of way. So, for example, I will never be a cutting edge alpinist because in order to do that, you know, you have to go and you have to face objective hazards like rockfall and avalanches and, you know, crevasse falls and all of those things. And that doesn't interest me. I don't want to do that. It's risk that I can't control. And that's not something that I want to pursue really fascinating that you go into that because one of, one of the questions later down the line which i can say now is mm-hmm. is you know you have that this approach of just wanting to push yourself further and see what more you can do which seems to believe it or not be a regular theme with the guests i have on the show <laughs> but, that's a shocker <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no no points for anyone who guessed that but <laughs> um but um but yeah that, the question really was you know where do you draw that line on acceptable risk you know how because each time it's only, it's only a little bit further, but it's only a little bit further. You know, where do you draw that line? Yeah, you know, for me, um, I distinguish between two different types of risks. I look at strategic risk and acute risk. Acute risk to me is you're big mountain skiing, you're about to, you know, drop into a couloir and you either nail those turns or you don't. And if you don't, you're screwed, right? That's acute risk. Same in rock climbing, you're on a hard pitch, you're on lead, you're in no fall zone. You know, if you go and you screw it up and you miss that move, you pitch, you screw yourself up, you're really in a world of, sh- of trouble, right? That's, that's acute risk to me. Strategic risk is the Iditarod. You're out there, you have 60 miles in between checkpoints, you don't have an SOS button, you're out there on your own, you're responsible for keeping yourself safe, you have a very real possibility of hypothermia and frostbite and you know exposure and you know all of these things that can lead to death, but it's not like you know, you take a step and you're dead. It's a matter of you make a poor decision and then you make another poor decision and then you make another poor decision. And, you know, six hours later, you're in real trouble. So you have time, you see it coming and you are in control in a much more strategic way where you have time to react, 
and you have time to make things right and to get yourself out of that predicament rather than, you know, hanging off a hold on a rock climb where, you know, the seconds are ticking. You can only hold on for so long and you've got to move up and you don't stick that hold. You know, you're, yeah, you're off the, off the wall and you're breaking bones. Yeah. Interesting way you round that off. Cause, cause as you were talking about strategic, the, the thing that was screaming out to me was control, you know, yeah. a, a risk you're able to control, not just, yeah, like you said, do a wrong turn on a gulag and, and off you go exactly. <laughs> down, down the hill the wrong way. <laughs> so how does something like the Editorod compare with the URA 100? <laughs> well, the URA 100 was a, or is a sanctioned race in the Colorado Rockies. It's a very, very, very hard hundred mile race. You know, it's, it's considered the little brother of the hard rock 100 essentially, which was of course a very, very famous 100 miler. Um, the URA 100 has about 42,000 feet of climbing. So what is that in meters? That's about 13, 12, 13,000 meters or something like that of ascent. And then the same back down as well you know so over 20,000 meters of vertical change total and it's all in the three to four thousand meter range above sea level so it's up high it's at altitude it's really difficult terrain it's very slow it took me 45 hours almost to go and finish that race and it was a beautiful race it was amazing but when you compare it to the Iditarod I mean there is no comparison. You know, the Iditarod is in a league of its own and it feels like a wild, wild, wild adventure. Yes, it is a formal race as well, but each racer really is responsible for their own decisions and is very much out there with this spirit of self-sufficiency and having to look after themselves. At the Ori 100, you know, there's eight stations every five to seven miles. And if you twist an ankle or, you know, you bonk or whatever, you just limp it into an aid station and you go to sleep, you know, in a van and you go home the next day. Like it's easy. It's, it's very structured and it's a beautiful race, but it's, you know, one of those where you just kind of go in and you execute and you put your head down and you grind through. And um, it's much more of a running event than uh, being out in Alaska and engaging in essentially a survival expedition. So you said that you on Aconcagua, you kept going because in part, yes, you were tired, but you weren't unsafe. What effect has being able to separate your fears from the reality had on you and your achievements? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, can I even separate my fears from the reality at all times? You know, sometimes I cannot. So the way I think about decision-making in the mountains is that what's really important out there is not so much what the outcome of any given endeavor is, but what drives your decisions in the moment and why you're making the choices that you're making. So for example, let's go back to the Ori 100. There was another woman in that race who um, was actually competing for the lead with me and I was certain that she was way stronger than I was and she, that she was going to win the race. Um, she ended up dropping out. And I would have liked to drop out in points as well. But pretty much at every aid station, you know, I took stock of how I was feeling. And I was saying, well, you know, I'm tired and my feet are kind of hurting. But really, I have no reason to drop out. I'm doing okay. I'm moving. You know, my pain's manageable. My energy is good. Yeah, I'm tired. Of course I'm tired. I've just, you know, run 80 miles with 35,000 feet of elevation gain. Of course I'm tired. That's just part of the game, right? So I keep going. So um, same on Aconcagua, you know, I had moments on the upper mountain where I was incredibly tired, but I knew that I wasn't 
physically at risk. And as such, I kept pushing myself. Now I've had other races where I dropped out um, just because I was tired and just because I wasn't having fun and I wasn't feeling well and I didn't want to do it anymore. And those DNFs were really hard for me because, you know, after the fact, once I had slept, I said, well, why did I drop out? I really didn't have a reason to. And yet I made the decision to not push on just because I could find an excuse to not push on. But then the whole point of being out there is to push yourself beyond that point where you don't want to push on. Right. So it's like, why didn't, why did I even go and do the race in the first place? If then I decided to drop out just because it was uncomfortable, like that's silly. Right. On the flip side, I have had days out there where I have pushed on and where I did push on beyond a point where I probably should have dropped out. And, you know, when I've had those days where I was making decisions, maybe not based on fear, but I was making decisions based more on ego rather than on smart assessments. Um, those are days that I consider um, actually really unsuccessful, even though the outcome was very positive for me. Right. So, yeah, that's, it's a very uh, a circuitous way for me to answer your question. But essentially, the way I always think about my trade-offs are try to focus on your preparation on your decision-making, do not focus on the outcome. And as long as you're happy with the decision-making, it really doesn't matter if you achieve whatever you set out to do or you don't. But what matters is that at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and say, yes, I made good decisions here. And if you made good decisions and you didn't make it to the top or you dropped out of a race, that's awesome. That's the way it should be. But don't abort an attempt. Don't drop out of a race until you have an actual reason to do so. Discomfort is not a reason. So um, alongside a fastest known time on Aconcagua from Advanced Base Camp, you've also become the first woman, only the third person to circumnavigate and traverse Aconcagua. What was your drive to do this? <laughs> well, you probably already know the answer based on our conversation here. Um, uncertainty <laughs> and discovery. You know, I really wanted to go and put together a couple of elements that I didn't know yet how I was going to react to. So when I ran on Aconcagua and then around Aconcagua, this was in 2017, 2018, I had done a lot of ultra running and I'd done a little bit of mountaineering, but I really hadn't put together high altitude and ultra running. And so I didn't know what it was going to feel like if I'm out there for, you know, 40 plus consecutive hours and I go and get up to almost 7,000 meters or 23,000 feet at the summit of Aconcagua, I had no idea if I was capable enough to go and string it all together and combine all of those different elements. And that's what made it interesting to me. And that's the reason that I wanted to try it combined with the fact, um, going back to what I said about risk earlier, that Aconcagua is objectively a relatively safe mountain. You know, it's a non-technical mountain by the standard routes. Um, it is also a very crowded mountain in some ways. So there's ranger stations and, you know, a lot of different camps and there's a lot of other climbers and, you know, there's enough infrastructure, even if you're moving solo and even if you are moving fast, people are never very, very far away from you. And it felt like it was a spot where I could push my physical boundaries without courting the risk of, you know, really getting myself in trouble um, by being too far out there and not having a way to get back home to get back to safety. Yeah, a, a similar thoughts reflected with a, um, a previous guest, Rebecca Coles, who said that she, she does a lot of first ascents. 
And she says if she ever picks a first ascent, she does it within her comfort zone because she'll go and push herself on discomfort on well-known, safer routes. So it's not the same thing, because I read that you had a friend pushing for a summit on the same day you were coming up, I think the other side was it. So at least you knew that someone, someone would be near you. That's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, you know, that was really crucial. Um, you know, the fact that this friend was up there. So he was working as a mountain guide for Inca, which is one of the outfitters down there. And, you know, I just so happened to know that he was going for the summit on that same day. He wasn't at all associated with me. He wasn't supposed to support me or anything like that. But I knew that he was going to be up there. And I knew that if he was there, you know, if I were to get in trouble, that I could go and hopefully, you know, lean on him in some way, or at least, you know, I, I had some sort of a mental safety net there, which was absolutely critical because when I got to high camp, which is up at 19,000 feet, so about 6,000 meters, I had previously stashed um, some water there, which obviously would, you know, turn to ice and freeze in the pot. And I'd left a stove and the pot with the frozen water. So I could just go and, you know, boil something really quick rather than having to melt snow. Well, when I got up there and I meant to resupply with that, you know, stashed stove, somebody had stolen the pot with the water in it. So now I had no way to melt water. And that meant that I was going up on the upper mountain without a resupply in water. I think I had about 300 milliliters left at that point. And at the pace that I was going, it was going to take me a good 12 hours to go from high camp to the summit and then back down to base camp where I was going to be able to fill up on water. So you know, and I was right in the middle of a 40 plus hour attempt. So I had 300 milliliters of water and was severely dehydrated in a, an area where you really should not be in that situation. So, you know, that was a risky call. And I only made that call because I knew that my friend Huli was up there. And, um, you know, if I had gotten myself uh, beyond the point of responsible discomfort, I knew that I would have been able to go and lean on him a little bit. Hmm. I mean, I've done six miles dehydrated before, and that that was hard enough, let alone top of well, back in Kagura. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't much more than six miles, actually. Let me think about that. Uh, to the summit from high camp and back down to base camp would have been, it would have been uh, eight miles. So a little bit more than that, but still not a lot of distance, <laughs> yeah, but, just I mean, a lot of time because it's so slow. Southwest England doesn't quite compare, <laughs> you know, the elevation gain, we, we count in two digits. <laughs> Details. Details. <laughs> it's the same. Exactly. Book me as a keynote speaker. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about acceptable risk already, but um, you said that you're incredibly curious to see what you can do. And you kind of hinted at it earlier on in the podcast as well. But what plans do you have now for cold expeditions now that you have something like the ITI and ski touring under your belt? Well, the big goal that I have eventually is that I would like to ski to the South Pole and I would like to chase after not the women's record, but the overall speed record out there, which is a really big endeavor and is going to require a lot of both funding and training. Um, so it's not something that's going to happen within the next year or two, but it's, you know, one of those five-ish year plans. I love the idea of being out there for an extended period of time and, you know, dealing with the elements and trying to move really fast in a really fascinating and very stark and very beautiful environment. And that's also the reason that I'd chosen to ski 
the ITI, even though I'm not a skier, right? Because if I'd like to go after the record to the South Pole on skis, and it's currently held by a former Norwegian cross-country Olympic skier who apparently could skate ski uphill while, you know, pulling a 200-pound sled. So (laughs) (laughs) I have my work cut out for me, and I figured that the ITI was a really good way to get my feet wet and start um, building that training base and building the experience base that I'm going to need to make that happen. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. And then you're right, that's we're talking what six figures for for funding for the South Pole. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be, yeah, definitely going to be in the solid six figures. And it's a long, long, arduous journey just to get to even the starting point of that ski cross. And then solo self-supported the whole way. Solo is a question. Um, Self-supported, yes. Uh, Solo, possibly, likely. I actually have a partner uh, who's based in the UK, uh, who is a wonderful woman that I met through climbing mountains, and she's very interested in doing it and for us to attempt it together. Now, you know, between COVID and everything else that happened in the last year, it's kind of thrown a wrench into some of that joint planning. But um, there is a possibility that it will be a partnership. There's a possibility that it might be solo. I like both ideas, but um, one way or the other, it's definitely going to be a very, very hard, very fast, and also very um, conditions-based journey, of course. You know, there's only so much that you can do in terms of physical fitness and strategic preparation to go after a record to the pole. You have to have all of that in place, but then you also have to get really lucky with conditions and find the right season in order to go and do that yeah absolutely so i read your piece on dnfing the fifth merger verse i was wondering can you tell us more about this route and its beauty and how you went on to complete the 76 miles fifty-five thousand foot of elevation change traverse the fifner is a really interesting place it's a north south traverse along the continental divide so through the rocky mountains in colorado And it is 76 miles that have not a single paved road crossing. So it's true wild country. You're up in the mountains. You know, there's no road access except for one spot in the middle. And that's a dirt road that can get you in there. And um, I had chosen the Pfiffner for two reasons. One of them was it was close to home and it sounded kind of cool. But the second reason was that I really needed a, what I would call a micro adventure to go and try to get ready for the Ore 100. So this was the year that I was training for the Ore 100. And because I don't really care all that much about physical performance, you know, I kind of touched on that earlier. I don't run for running sake, but because I love the mental challenge and the the psychological stimulation, um, I don't do very well with training and just discipline in terms of pounding out the miles just in order to get stronger and faster for a race, right? However, I also knew that I would need to actually take preparation for the URA 100 seriously because it's a hundred miler with, you know, 85,000 feet of elevation change. And I can't just do that off the couch compared to, by the way, the Iditarod, which I pretty much did do off the couch last month. So that's a different story. But um, so for the URA 100, I needed training, um, But in order for me to train and to train happily, I needed to find an adventure that would also double as training. And so I saw that there was this Pfiffner Traverse, 76 miles close to home in the mountains, looked beautiful. And I decided to try it mostly because I wanted a reason to get off the couch and get off my butt and, you know, actually get the miles in. And I started on the Pfiffner Traverse, tried to put the fastest known time on it and got my 
butt handed to me on the first attempt. I mean, I wasn't acclimatized yet. I was moving slow. There was weather moving in, you know, I was, I looked at the terrain and I said, oh, well, you know, at 76 miles, I should be able to do that with a three mile an hour average pace pretty easily. I mean, three miles an hour is walking pace, right? So how hard could that have been? Well, yeah, no, I couldn't. I was way, way, way too slow, but it was also so stunningly beautiful up there on, you know, terrain that is just entirely untrodden where nobody ever goes, where there's this one area that's called a a Paradise Valley uh, Natural Recreation Area, I think is what the name of it is. And it's a day use area only where you're not allowed to camp overnight. There's no trails in there. It's completely wild. It's just this beautiful, beautiful spot, truly a Paradise Valley. You know, the only way to get in there is to hike, I don't know how many dozens of miles from the closest road. The Pfiffner went straight through it. And, you know, I'm just running this thing or trying to run it looking left and looking right. And I remember I had tears in my eyes as I'm climbing one of the passes at sunset, not because the pass was so steep, but because it was so beautiful. And I was so wishing that I could bring my husband out there and show all of this to him, right. And share that experience with him. So um, I ended up failing on my first attempt to complete the Fifner, but I had such an amazing experience out there. And it was such a beautiful place that even as I was hiking out to the closest roadhead for my husband to pick me up from the aborted attempt, I was already making plans for how I was going to be able to come back there and finish it. I did do just that. I came back and uh, actually <laughs> ended up with a weather window to complete the Pfiffner in the second attempt uh, about seven days before the URA 100 which of course was not a smart idea at all because the Ori 100 was supposed to be my A race for the season. And I wasn't strong enough and I wasn't trained enough to do two really big mountain runs on two consecutive weekends. But, you know, I looked at the Pfiffer and I was like, well, it's so beautiful. And this is my one chance to do it. And right now is the one time that I'm fit enough to go and try this. So who cares about the URA 100? I'm just going to go and I'll do the Pfiffner and then I'll see what I can do in URA. And yeah, I ended up setting the fastest known time on the Pfiffner and then winning URA within about eight days time. Damn. <laughs> that's, that's something, isn't it? <laughs> it was a lot of work, but it was also really, really beautiful. <laughs> and sometimes I sit there like, oh, I don't really want to go for a 5k today. <laughs> <laughs> and you were just out there smashing that. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> So um, one of the mantras you seem to say a lot is um, no stress, just training. So what's your mindset when you head into these challenges where that's necessary? Well, it's funny that that's my mantra, isn't it? Given that I don't train very well because I don't have the discipline to train. (laughs) However, one thing that I have found early on in ultra running is that I've actually always been an athlete that ended up chasing cutoffs quite a bit because I don't like to train. And, um, you know, because I am a naturally pretty lazy athlete. So, um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time just chasing the clock and trying to beat those cutoffs and trying to make sure that I don't time out. And, um, that then translates into prolonged hours, if not days of looking at the clock and saying, oh boy, oh boy, I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. Got to move it. Got to move it. Got to move it. And, you know, of course that ends up elevating your cortisol and adrenaline levels and it's just stressful and I don't like that. So what I've tried to remind myself of is to say, you know, you're out here for a reason. If you don't 
you know, achieve this particular outcome or this particular record or podium or whatever it may be. It's still great miles. It's still great exercise. It's still a great workout. So don't think about, you know, what you're trying to get out of it. Just think about what you're putting into this effort, which is time on your feet and an experience that's going to help you get stronger for the future. And so that's why that mantra has come about. But, um, you know, really the, the main reason that I love going on these adventures um, outside of the whole discovery and uncertainty element is that they allow me to focus exclusively on what's in front of me and what I'm doing in the moment, right? And not having to think about anything else in life. And so that's also a little bit encapsulated in this whole no stress, just training mantra that really brings me back to the moment and centers me. Perfect. So we've got a couple of questions before some wrap up ones now. So uh, the one thing I was really wanting to get from you is you now with so much achievement, is there a particular adventure you've done which taught you the most? That's a great question. You know, I'm torn on that between my very first 100 kilometer race, which was 10 years ago in Madagascar, where for the first time, you know, I really put myself out there and tried to do something that was completely unfathomable to me. And then um, the very last adventure that I've had, which is the ITI, which, you know, was such a massive, just transformational experience. Though I actually also have to say that there was one day in the mountains that I do talk about occasionally that had some really difficult lessons for me. And that was the first time that I set a speed record on Aconcagua, the one from base camp to the summit, which I consider the, uh, the short speed record, you know, it's only about six miles and uh, 9,000 feet of climbing. So um, on that speed record, I, I attempted to do that on the back end of having been sick for a couple of weeks. Um, I'd had really bad bronchitis and, you know, I've been fighting a really bad cough for probably six weeks at that point. And I was feeling better. And, you know, I felt like I was in a good position to go after the record. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really have massive objectives and I wanted to see if I could get the record, but I didn't have my heart set on it necessarily because I had some other speed goals, you know, further out on that mountain. So this was really just meant to be a training run and to see how well trained I was and, you know, give me a bit of a benchmark, but long story short, I, I started out on the speed record. I pushed it a little bit, but I certainly didn't feel like I was redlining or like I was really going all out and giving it everything that I had. And I set the record, got to the summit, felt great sat down to radio down to base camp, confirming that I'd broken the record. And then I got back up and wanted to head back down and realized as I started down the mountain that I couldn't breathe. And, you know, I had, without even realizing, pushed way, way, way beyond my physical limits that day. And I barely made it back down the mountain. I mean, I ended up taking dexamethasone as a rescue drug. And I ended, up, um, I ended up asking a friend of mine to come up from base camp to meet me halfway up the mountain because I was concerned that I might sit down, pass out and, you know, potentially die from exposure overnight because I'd just be lying there, you know, without any protection. So um, that was one of those examples where the outcome of the day was fantastic. My decision-making process was incredibly poor and went very, very wrong somewhere, particularly because it's not like I was saying, oh, well, I'm sick. 
but I think I can do this and I'm just going to give it all and it's worth it to me and I'm going to push so hard, right? That was not my thought process at all. I thought that I wasn't pushing all that hard and I thought that I was leaving plenty in the tank and I didn't see it coming at all. So having that experience of crossing the line by a long shot and being completely blindsided was a really, really big learning experience for me. How do you take that lesson and apply it to your future adventures? I mean, that's, that's got to be a hard thing to, to judge, right? I pay really close attention, not just to my mindset now, but also to my physical well, status, I guess. You know, I think I listen much more closely to my body and I have a much lower tolerance for actual um well actual pain and actual quote-unquote suffering so for example in the iti you know i kind of alluded to the fact that i more or less completed this race off the couch um because i didn't have time to train and that was really silly but that's a different story um i knew from the very beginning that i was not strong enough to go and push hard day after day after day after day and do that on no sleep and try to you know, just push through and complete 350 miles really fast. I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And I knew that I had to find a strategy where I could get stronger throughout the race, essentially taking the early days as training, you know, while sleeping really well, while recovering every night, while doing what I could to not get injured, to then hopefully have the back end in the last couple of days of the race to really push it, leveraging that base that I would have built over the previous week. So I was trying to do that. And it actually ended up working out. Like it was a fantastic strategy. I'm very grateful for my body to not have broken down and to not have gotten injured. You know, that was a gamble, but the whole recovery element with me sleeping between, I think the least I ever slept in the first week was four hours. And the most that I slept was nine hours. So, you know, I really truly got good rest during the race compared to everybody else who was out there that worked out fantastically well. And I was listening to my body very closely, but even with that, um, at the turnaround of the, the, the course, um, we had to go and cross the Alaska range twice. Um, so you'd go across the Alaska range on Rainy Pass, go to the far side, which was this checkpoint called Rhone. And then you'd turn around, come back across Rainy Pass, go back into the flats and then ski back out towards the finish. Well, the second day that I crossed the pass, um, the second time I was strung out and I was starting to really, really feel the wear and tear on my body. And I could feel as I was lying down that, you know, my heart seemed to be skipping a beat here and there. And I was like, Ooh, you know, this feels, this feels really borderline. And I actually feel really good while I'm skiing and I feel strong, but I was traveling with another gal at the time with Sarah. And I, I stopped her at one point and I said, by the way, you know, I'm kind of feeling like I'm having some arrhythmia here. I feel good, but I want you to know what's going on, <laughs> you know, in case, my status changes at all. And, you know, I'll be paying really close attention. I'd like for you to pay close attention to me as well. And, you know, go from there. And, you know, thankfully in that situation, things never deteriorated and I was able to continue to rest and fuel and be okay over time. But, you know, three, four years ago, before my Aconcagua experience, I probably wouldn't even have paid attention to that and would have just, you know, written it off to adrenaline or, you know, whatever else. So yeah i listen very carefully now that's incredibly insightful and pretty 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 epic i mean in a very 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 minor way um i have issues with um uh communicating with the people i'm with if i'm feeling 
uh, feeling anything going on, like nothing major, but um, uh, you know, things like Ben Nevis, I started just seeing like stars a little bit when we were coming up. And I think it was from the reflection from all the snow because we were in several, several whiteouts. Yeah. But I didn't communicate that with Dan and, and he had to go at me when we got back to the car. <laughs> I yeah. like one. And yeah. then also uh, my heel screwing up as well on, on another mountain. Uh, that guy is, that guy was in the army and he told me off. He was, he was like, you know, you've got to tell me, let's just take the time now, be bothered, get it, get it taped up, keep going. So 100%. I mean, it's so important. And, you know, it's one of those things where oftentimes there'll be something really small and you're like, oh, well, I can deal with that. I don't need to bother anybody with that. No, you know, and first off, actually, even if you're by yourself and you're not with partners, in an event like the Iditarod, for example, the beauty is that it may be something really small right now, but if you don't take care of it and if you don't address it and if you try to ignore it, it ends up getting into a massive issue potentially. And so you can't take that luxury. You have to be so finely attuned to what's going on with yourself. And if you're with partners, I think it's you know equally important, if not more important, to keep everybody else in the loop and um, you know not be a hypochondriac, obviously. But at the same time, you know if you can feel that something's just a little bit off from what it is usually... You know, if I would be a first responder for anybody in my team, I would have, I would like to know, you know, what they were feeling leading up to an event, <laughs> rather to then have the guesswork when they're potentially not responsive, right? Well, it goes back to your strategic risk, doesn't it? Uh, making, try not to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, right? So exactly. Yeah. So last question before a couple of wrap up ones. You featured on the San Miguel Rich List, which uh, for, for those who don't know, is a group of people who know that experiences are the most valuable thing of all rather than material wealth. But if there was one moment you could choose to put on that list, one moment that you could relive, what would that be? Oh, that's such a hard question. Sorry. <laughs> Man, Chris, <laughs> that's difficult. Just one single moment, you know. Man, I'm gonna have to go and grab a San Miguel and think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to say just because it's so easy, it's been so recent, and you know, it's been so transformative. I want to just say the ITI again, but that's a cop-out answer, I think, because you know, that's just the most recent thing and has been the most impactful here in the last couple of months or the last years. But, you know, the things that come to mind for me are my first climbs in the Himalayas in Nepal. Um, I mean, they're, they're the time that I was in Zion National Park and I rope soloed my first big wall being up on a wall, you know, all by myself for a couple of days, which was completely epic. Um, running through the night in Madagascar on my first 100k and just not even knowing what I was doing and having no idea um being up on the Pifna Traverse I mean there's there are many of them in all honesty and um oh you know what actually I know what the answer is I know so for my 30th birthday I gave myself a present and um in case you're curious this was about six years ago now <laughs> so I was still working corporate at the time and I was thinking about what to do for my birthday for quite a while. You know, I was thinking about, oh, should I go and throw a big party or, you know, go see family in Europe or go on a vacation or, you know, what's the right thing to do here? And I finally decided that what I really wanted to do for my 30th birthday was to go on a weekend trip by myself, which I would do quite a lot and uh, go to the Grand Canyon, which is a place that I'm absolutely madly in love with. 
And I wanted to go and run the Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim, which I had done once previously at the time. So that's about a 42 mile double crossing of the Grand Canyon, you know, 20,000 feet of vertical changer. So it's a, it's a big day, but it's not, you know, a hundred mile or anything quite as brutal. And it's just this absolutely gorgeous, absolutely beautiful run. And I remember going out there and doing that for my 30th birthday and just feeling absolutely wonderful and amazing and feeling so blessed to be able to move like that and to be in such a beautiful place. And then at the back end of it, I uh, finished the run and I drove about 10 minutes to my campsite just outside of the national park boundary. I had a tent pitched in this beautiful Ponderosa pine forest. And um, I remember I was lying in my tent, dirty, sweaty, super tired, about to pass out. And I had this little triangular, you know, door that was just open towards the sky. And I'm lying there looking up at the stars, you know, through the trees and just in a tiny little sliver of heaven that I could see, I saw three shooting stars within like 10 seconds. And that moment I was just sitting there, I was like, yes, this is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is my life. So (laughs) that would be it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Failing that, they can always do a Sam Miguel Sunny edition. And uh... (laughs) And make do a collection like a, like a calendar of all the moments. <laughs> Maybe we should check in in five years' time and see if that answer changes to the South Pole. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you have any connections, go and make it happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, first wrap-up question. Then, obviously, COVID's impacted across. But if you had perfect conditions and a free ticket to go anywhere, where's one part of the world you haven't adventured in that you would go to first? Two answers to that. Baffin Island. I really want to go to Baffin Island. And my husband, Paul, has had an epic adventure down there. Uh, that was about 25 years ago now. So I'm, I'd really like to get down there, do some climbing, do some adventuring, maybe do some ski traverses or some running. Uh, sorry, get up there. It's not down. It's up north, obviously. The other spot that I'd really like to go to is um, the Aneti Desert in Chad. If you Google the Towers of the Aneti, the North Face put out a beautiful short film about Alex Honnold and Mark Sinnott. And uh, I think James Pearson was down there as well um, a couple of years ago called The Towers of the Aneti. And the first time I saw that film, I was like, I want to go there so badly. And yeah, I still really like to go there. Perfect. And then lastly, if we want to keep up to date with your adventures, where can we do so? Find me on Instagram is probably the easiest. Um, You can just Google for my name, Sunny Stur. I'm sure, Chris, you're going to put the name in the show notes as well so people yeah. can figure out the weird spelling. But yeah, if you if you look for me, you know, on the web, you'll find my Instagram. It's S-S-T-R-O-E-E-R. So first initial and last name. I have a website, sunnystur.com. Um, and I also have, you know, all sorts of writings and articles and, you know, short films and whatever that you can find online. So Google is your friend. Perfect. Well, listen, Sonny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Chris, for having me. I really appreciate the invitation and very, very much enjoyed the chat. Really hope you enjoyed that chat. Go and follow Sonny on Instagram and social media, and I will speak to you all in the next week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>